Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 6, 1 through 11, and our text, the verses 9 through 11, which deal with the fifth seal. So Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a a pair of scales in, in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Then he opened the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And this begins our text. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to go back to the uh, to the book of Revelation for a while. I'm not sure how long. We'll just see how it goes. I think the book of Revelation is a, a very important book for us to study, but I feel that it's probably be more profitable if we take it in sections and, and uh, take breaks every once in a while. It's pretty intense. Today, then, we consider chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, which tell us what happened when the Lamb opened the fifth seal of the scroll. The scroll of the plan of God for the coming of the kingdom of God. We were introduced to that scroll in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. And we learned there that the scroll, which contains the, the plan of God for the salvation of the world and That salvation also includes the judgment of God upon those who refuse to submit to his rule. 
Um, chapter 5 tells us that the only being in the whole universe that was worthy to take the scroll and to open its seven seals was the Lamb, and we are told particularly the Lamb that was slain. The Lamb, of course, is the exalted Jesus Christ, and his death is at the heart of God's victory over sin and death and Satan. Because of that, he is the one who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll. And we, we learn what that means from the rest of the book of, Le- of Revelation, which shows us certain things happening, both in heaven and on earth, uh, when each of the seals of the scroll is opened. And the rest of the book of Revelation Uh, makes it clear that the scroll is the plan of God for the salvation of his people and for the defeat of evil. And that plan involves the history of the world, leading to the final state, the new heavens and the new earth. One of the powerful insights that we receive from Revelation's teaching about the scroll is that everything that happens in the world including the calamities of various kinds, all of that is rooted in the death of Christ. The Lamb is worthy to open the scrolls, the the, the seals of the scroll because he was slain. Everything that happens in the world belongs to the coming of God's kingdom. Both salvation and judgment are rooted in the death of Christ. The unrolling of the scroll is the implementation of God's plan for the renewal of all things, and that includes the defeat of evil, that includes everything that the rest of the book of Revelation describes. So this morning we consider what happened when the Lamb, Jesus, opened the fifth seal. John writes in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So we get a, a glimpse into heaven and we see souls, the souls of those who had been killed because they faithfully witnessed to the word of God. Jesus himself had been killed because of his faithful witness to the word of God in the New Testament makes it very clear that many of his followers would also be killed for the same reason. Here in this text, we're given a picture then of what happens to those who are killed as martyrs. We see their souls in heaven. Their bodies are in the graves, in their graves, but their souls are in heaven. And this this is the heart of the biblical comfort for believers in the face of persecution. This passage and many others make it clear that Christians may be killed because of their witness to Christ. The great comfort here is that the souls of those who are killed because of their witness to Christ are in heaven. Now this is a way of referring to the whole church and not only those who are literally executed because of their witness to Christ. That conclusion is based on the way that the book of Revelation and the rest of the New Testament speak of believers and of suffering, of their suffering for the faith. 
in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the the text refers to all believers as those who overcome. Revelation 20 verse 4 refers to all believers as the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Gregory Beale, one of the leading scholars on the book of Revelation, he writes, This all-inclusive identification is clear from the use of overcome in chapters 2 and 3, and throughout the book, not only of those who undergo execution for their faith, but primarily of believers who conquer temptations to sin and to compromise in the face of various kinds of suffering. And he continues... This is also consistent with the figurative use of sacrificial martyr language in the New Testament generally, end quote. So this figurative use of martyr language is found, for instance, in Jesus' call to believers, to all believers, to take up their cross and follow him. The same type of language is used in Paul's call to all believers in Romans 12 verse 1 to present their bodies as living sacrifices to God. Christians by definition are those who give their lives for Christ. As a body we are hated by the world. We are all called to be willing to be martyrs rather than deny Christ. But the vast majority of Christians are not martyred for their faith. So in the world of the imagery of the book of Revelation, the reference to the souls of those who are slain for the word of God is a reference to the whole church to all who are willing to suffer rather than compromise, even if that suffering does not lead to literal death. And this verse is intended to encourage all believers to live lives to Christ, to offer their lives to Christ, regardless of what that looks like in specific instances that may involve persecution of varying intensities. It it will always involve identifying with Jesus as the crucified one. It will always involve some degree of hatred from the world. The letter to the Hebrews makes it clear that while individuals are persecuted in varying degrees. All believers belong to the one body of Christ. So Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So the idea there is if one one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Hebrews 13 12 and 13 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Let us, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. That's a calling to all Christians. 
So the picture in our text of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne is an encouragement to all of us to live the life of dying for Christ. Whatever that form takes, dying is painful and dying is sacrificial. It means that the Christian life is a radical offering of our lives for Christ. It means that the Christian life is not a life of ease and this worldly comfort. The inner dynamic is the same whether it means offering our lives in martyrdom or offering our lives in other ways. Either way, it involves dying to self that we might live for Christ. And either way, the great encouragement to accept the sacrifice of the pain of sacrifice in this life is the the assurance that when our lives here on earth are over, our souls will join those under the altar in heaven. Quote, the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they have borne. Now, these souls in heaven are crying out to God. They're in heaven. All is well with them. All is well with their souls. But that does not mean that there are no unmet desires. They're crying out to the Lord with a loud voice. And this is what they are saying. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's really quite surprising, isn't it? This prayer. These are the souls of the saints in heaven. They are perfected. They're completely free from their sins. Hebrews 12, 23 refers to the saints in heaven as the the saints of the righteous made, or rather the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These saints, these souls, they're completely sanctified. They're holy. And they are crying out to God to judge and avenge their blood. Now there are commentators who view this request negatively. They review it as sub-Christian. But that is a profound misunderstanding. This is the prayer of those who have been perfected. This is the prayer of those who see things more clearly than they ever saw when they were on earth and that anyone who is now on earth sees. This is the prayer of those who have been completely restored into the image of God. This prayer for justice and for vengeance sounds like the Psalms of Imprecation in the Old Testament. There are many places in the Psalms where the poets cry out to God to punish 
their enemies. For instance, in Psalm 74, 10 and 11, we read, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. The key to understanding verses like this in the Bible is that it's not about personal vengeance, but justice. Justice is an important theme in the Bible. God is a just God. One of the ways that the people of God reflect the character of their God is by longing for and praying for justice. You see, there, there's no hope. There can be no hope that all will someday be made right apart from justice. The fact that God is a just God means that at the end of the world there will be a final judgment. If that were not the case, it would mean that evil would triumph over good. If there was no punishment of evildoers, it means that God would just be allowing all the horrible things that happen in the world and never do anything about them. Just think of how awful the world would be if there were no justice at all. If evildoers were never punished. One of the awful things about the world as it is, is that so often evildoers get away with their cruelty in this life. And one of the great comforts of the Bible is that in the end, when God punishes the world, justice will be done. <clears throat> and that's why David sings in Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. It says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he rules the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. And the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the one through whom the judging will be done. When Paul was preaching in Athens, he said that God, quote, has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all <clears throat> by raising him from the dead. That's Acts seventeen thirty-one. Now, if this were the whole story, there would be no hope for anyone, because we're all guilty before God. We are all deserving of eternal punishment. But that's the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment that we deserve, so that we are spared that punishment justly. And furthermore, the message that those who believe in Jesus are forgiven their sins and are made righteous, made right with God, that message has been sent into all the world by God himself. The justice of God is not the whole story. There's also the love of God and the mercy of God, which has made a way in Jesus to save sinners, a way that satisfies 
his justice, but not all will believe on Jesus. Many will reject him. They will end up getting what they deserve. And that's part of the good news. The good news is that at the end of the world, every sin will have received its punishment, whether by Jesus suffering or by the rejecters of Jesus bearing their own sin. And that's necessary for good to triumph over evil. That's necessary for God to triumph over Satan. That's necessary for there to be hope that in the end, no sin will go unpunished. This is the way that God will deal with the terrible injustices that are perpetuated in this world. The scale of the injustices that some people perpetuate on and other people suffer is absolutely staggering and very disturbing. Injustices are disturbing because we're made in the image of God. And so we have a sense of justice. I read a book recently on the way in which the Indian tribes in America were treated during the settlement of the West. A very disturbing story. The cruelty was mind-boggling. And that kind of thing has happened countless times in the history of the world. Part of the reason that these stories are so unsettling is that they, they're like a mirror. They show us something of our own sinful nature. They tell us something about ourselves. But the Bible tells us that after the final judgment is complete, perfect justice will be done. Some will be forgiven given because Jesus took their punishment and suffered in their place. The rest will get what they deserve. And that's because of who God is. That's because God is a just God. And that belongs to the reason that God is worthy of our worship. And so it is part of the perfection of the saints in heaven that they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And this is included in the book of Revelation as a comfort and as an encouragement for the people of God who are still on earth, who are facing persecution and the hatred of the world. Just think of the Christians who are facing the brunt of of the persecution at this moment. It's easy for us to hear about these things, to read of them. We have lots of access to that information. Things that are happening around the world. Recently, I was just reminded of the prison camps in in North Korea. The horrors that these people are experiencing is, is unbelievable. The cruelty is shocking. The Bible assures us that the sins of the perpetrators will be punished, either in Christ if they repent or 
they will get what they deserve for the great evils that they have done to the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a tension here, and that tension is rooted in the character of God. Now, of course, there is no tension in God himself, but there is a tension in us as we reflect the character of God, and that is a tension between justice and mercy. God has sent the church into the world with the good news of salvation in Jesus. Reflecting God's character means seeking the salvation of the lost, even our enemies, even the haters of God and his people. Just think of Jesus' prayer, even as the soldiers were nailing him to the cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We must reflect the love and the compassion of Jesus. We must reflect God's compassion for us. And, uh, and reflect that compassion to others. And yet one of the comforts that the Bible gives to those who are persecuted is that <clears throat> persecutors will one day receive what they deserve. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul, he's comforting the Thessalonians in their persecution. And part of his comfort is this. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In Romans 12, 19, Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One of the reasons for not avenging ourselves is that God will make sure that justice is done and we are to leave it in his hands. So the prayer of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, asking God to judge and avenge our prayer, is a holy prayer and it is intended to strengthen and to encourage saints on earth who are suffering for the cause of Christ. It's not motivated by hatred, but but by a longing for justice. And behind the longing for justice is a desire for the glory of God. If God would not punish the persecutors of his people who refuse to repent, he would not be a just God. The glory of God demands the final judgment. And so part of godliness is a longing and prayer for God to glorify himself both through the salvation of sinners and through the punishment of those who persist in their rebellion against God and who persecute the people of God. Well, verse 11 tells us how this prayer for justice was answered. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been.
Now to understand the significance of the white robes here in this passage, it's important to consider the context in which this symbol is used. Well, in every case of that symbol, the symbol of the white robes, there is a similarity in meaning. It is not identical in every instance, and so it's important to consider what point is being made in the context. And here the white robe is given as an answer to their prayer for justice. You see, on earth, they had been condemned to death as evildoers. In heaven, their souls are crying out to God for justice. And in response to those prayers, God gave them white robes. So we need to understand the significance of those white robes in that context. The white robes in this context do not, does not, they don't symbolize justification in general as they do in other places. The white robes here have to do with the injustices that have been perpetuated upon them. They had been put to death as evildoers. <clears throat> By giving them white robes in response to their cries for justice, God is overturning the sentence of the persecutors. The word for this is vindication. God is declaring that they did not deserve to be put to death by their enemies. God <clears throat> is declaring that killing them was an unjust act and they had been righteous in the situation. Significant that in the Psalms, where the psalmists cry out for justice, one of their specific requests is often the request for vindication. Psalm 7 is an example of this in verse 3 and verse 5. David says to God, O oh oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, <clears throat> let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And then in verse 8 he says, The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O oh God, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. When God's people are persecuted, they are falsely accused. The people who are persecuting them claim to be on the side of right, and they accuse God's people of being subversive and dangerous. And that's why you have this prayer of David asking God to judge him according to his righteousness and integrity. Part of the judgment is declaring that the people, the person who is suffering at the hands of his enemy is in the right. That's what's going on here in Revelation 6 when the souls who cry out for justice are given white robes. <clears throat> They've been put to death as evildoers and God is giving them white robes, declaring them to be righteous in the situation that they have been killed in or for. They have been falsely accused and God is vindicating them. 
Certainly they are righteous in Christ. But the concern of this passage is with being vindicated by God in response to the way in which they have been treated on earth. One of the things to look forward to in heaven is vindication. On earth, Christians are often labeled as bigots or naive or fanatics or a hindrance to the common good, subversive. The white robes here mean that the truth will be revealed. Christians are on the side of truth and righteousness and goodness. God will acknowledge that his people were in the right that they have been treated unjustly in the world. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 135, 14, which says, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. So the souls of the saints who were crying out for justice were given white robes. They're also told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the souls of the saints in heaven are told that there will be more suffering on the part of the saints on earth before the number of those killed for their faith is complete. And this message is not disturbing for the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. This message comes in the same breath as the message to rest a little longer. The image of rest is that of peace and of comfort, of well-being. It is the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus' promises, Jesus' promise to those who come to him. Come to me and I will give you rest. So the saints in heaven, the souls in heaven are not upset when they are told that the saints on earth must continue to suffer persecution. They hear that news with restful spirits. This news is not disturbing and distressing for them. And the reason, of course, is that they are thinking of the suffering on earth from the perspective of heaven. They've experienced the joys on the other side of death. They understand. They understand in a way that is deeper than anyone on earth can understand, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. They understand fully what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. This passage is here to help and encourage believers on earth to persevere in the face of the spiritual warfare they are engaged in on earth. As we have seen, there's a, always been a great difference between in the way that Christians have experienced persecution. The book of Revelation was not only written for those who were facing death on account of their faith, it was written for Christians in every situation. We're all called to give our lives for Christ in the midst of attack, of the attacks of Satan, whether that's in the form of death threats or in the form of insults or in the form of temptations, of the temptations of affluence and prosperity. Satan wants to kill us all. He goes about trying to do that in all kinds of different ways. And in the face of that opposition, we are called to offer our lives as a sacrifice to God through the power of the salvation of salvation in Christ. And one of the great motivations to carry on and to endure is the blessedness of heaven. This passage gives us a peek into heaven. And we see that the souls of those who are there are at rest. They have received the blessedness of being with God and the rest that is promised to believers. This peek into heaven is given to us to encourage us in the struggles that characterize this present age. The saints in heaven are not sad. They're not disturbed by being reminded that the saints on earth must suffer because they understand that this, that suffering in the light of the joys that they are experiencing in heaven. They understand what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he wrote, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are being called to consider our lives in the light of heaven. We are being called to live with hope and joy in the midst of the struggles of life because of the joys that await us after we leave this life. We are being called to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we do thank you for your word and for the truths that you reveal to us, truths that we could not know any other way but through your revelation. You give us peek into heaven itself and while we know that it is symbolic we also know and confess that it is true that there is absolute truth being conveyed to us by these symbols and they are intended to to instruct us into what is true and into what is the right perspective on our lives, our sufferings, 
in the light of heaven, in the light of eternity. Lord, we pray that your kingdom may come. We pray that you would help us to be more and more conformed to your image so that our prayers also reflect that image as the prayers of those in heaven do. And so we pray for the coming of your kingdom that involves both the salvation of sinners and the, the, your justice upon those who refuse. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to reflect your character in our desires and in our prayers. We thank you for the great comfort of this passage, for the fact that we can see this picture of the souls in heaven at rest, even as they are reminded of the sufferings that we must go through. We pray that we may be able to reflect that rest as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.